coming up on Economics Explored. If you were to go into a business meeting for the first time, you know, you're trying to seal a deal, the CEO offers to shake your hand and you don't do it, there's a, there's a cost that comes with that. You know, first impressions matter. So we've decided to keep this practice going, even though it serves no purpose anymore and, in fact, is slightly worse than the alternatives that we could come yes. up with because of germs. Yeah. Because it's, it's, uh, it's to do with basically this social interdependence of payoffs, which I mentioned in the abstract. Basically, we care about what others do. We want to be able to do the same thing as them. And if we go against the norm, there's a social cost to us. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 105 on social norms, particularly on the persistence of bad social norms, such as female genital mutilation, abbreviated as FGM. My guest this episode is Dr. David Smerden, a lecturer, i.e. an assistant professor, in the University of Queensland School of Economics. In addition to being a rising star of behavioural and experimental economics worldwide, David is a chess grand master. David has had an important paper on social norms published in the Experimental Economics Journal and he's been leading a major field study of FGM in Somalia. So he's definitely a good person to speak with about this topic. Please note that I'll put a link to David's social norms paper in the show notes, as well as other links relevant to the conversation. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions relating to this episode or to previous episodes, then please send them to contact at economicsexplored.com. I'd love to hear from you. Righto, now for my conversation with Dr. David Smerden on social norms. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. David Smerden, lecturer in the University of Queensland School of Economics. Good to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, David. David, I'm keen to chat with you about your work on social norms. And I've noticed that you've co-authored a paper with some big names in behavioural economics. And the paper is Everybody's Doing It on the Persistence of Bad social norms okay so this is this is broadly in the field of behavioral economics is that right yeah uh, at least that's the way that i was i was trained during my phd and and that's where my supervisors come from but social norms that's obviously a topic that covers a lot of disciplines which is also why i was interested in it Um, i'm quite interested in interdisciplinary research in general so you know if you're a political scientist or a social psychologist or whoever um or or at just a study of um topics in health as well social norms are super important absolutely and very important uh in economics and the marketplace and and i think economists do have something to offer in studying social norms and so you did a phd at university of amsterdam is that right yeah, yeah. A couple of years ago now, um, my supervisors, um, like you mentioned, uh, sort of uh, reasonably well established in behavioural economics and particularly in uh, experimental economics as well. The the Amsterdam guys uh, a couple of decades ago, sort of a group was founded there where they, well, in general, the Dutch people are not afraid of looking outside of the box in, in different disciplines. And they took to experimental economics pretty quickly. 
um, and sort of establish themselves as one of the one of the core groups around the world for this practice. So I was sort of trained particularly in lab experiments, but after a while, topics like social norms, I realized that it's pretty important to capture those sort of phenomena outside of the lab. So I've, I've moved into field experiments a little bit as well. Good one. Okay, we can chat about that a bit later because that's that that's something I'm very interested in. I've previously had. Andreas Chai from Griffithon to talk about randomised control trials. I've also had Brendan Markey Taylor, who was at UQ for a while, on to chat about behavioural economics. So all the all of great interest. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So I might what I might do is I might read from the abstract of this uh, this paper because it's, I think it's very well written and it it nicely sets out what you've looked at and your findings, which is actually rare in an abstract. Often you read these academic abstracts and you've just got no idea what on earth. A particular papers about so it's uh, you, you write we investigate how information about the preferences of others affects the persistence of bad social norms one view is that bad norms thrive even when people are informed of the preferences of others since the bad norm is an equilibrium of a coordination game the other view is based on pluralistic ignorance in which uncertainty about other others' preferences is crucial. So I might stop there. That's halfway through the abstract. I think it'd be good to explore some of these concepts. What do you mean by how a bad norm could be an equilibrium? So this is a solution. This is what ends up being uh, what the resolution of this game is, of a coordination game. What, what do you actually mean by that? How could that actually come about? Yeah, so to answer that, I'll, I'll back up just a little about uh, the history of social sure. norms research. Economists... I mean, as you know, we love going outside of our lanes and stamping our authority on topics that maybe other disciplines have studied for a century or so and coming in with a flag and saying, yep, we've found it now. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. We have, I mean, it, we're, we're much better. Um, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, being a little bit lyrical about that, but, but we do do that. We do stray from our lanes and sometimes we have a tendency to overstay our contribution. Social psychologists have been working on social norms just for, for so long, for literally a century. Um, and they've learned a lot of stuff, but we bring, economists bring new tools and new rigor to this and, and particularly game theory. I know you've had some game yes. theoreticians in here. That's a, it's a very useful tool to be able to, to create a simplified model and then tweak the parameters and see what happens. And it does seem at first a little bit strange to apply mathematical theory to something like social norms, which is sounds like a very sociological sort of topic, but it does make a lot of sense. And it helps us when we run experiments and sort of structures the debate when we use empirical data and in game theory, of course, you've got these things like equilibrium. So trying to predict long run outcomes and for a long time, we didn't touch social norms as a topic in economics because game theory simply says that if you've got a coordination system where there's a, um, a good equilibrium and a bad equilibrium, then over time, people's behavior will adjust and you'll end up in the good equilibrium. So, for instance, if you think about uh, driving on the road uh, back in the day mm. before there were laws telling you which side to drive on, well, everyone can drive on the left, everyone can drive on the right, both of those seem to work pretty well in different countries, but there's also a mixed equilibrium where you you sort of drive on um, both sides of the road with some sort of probability. And obviously that's not a great outcome and that's never going to be a stable equilibrium. We're yeah. never going to end up there. Now that's a pretty, um, it's a pretty flippant example, but there are other situations like for instance, 
the keyboards that we use, we use a QWERTY keyboard, yeah. Q-W-E-R-T-Y on the top. It's not the most efficient keyboard. The world would be a slightly better place, more productive place if we had a different keyboard. But we, we don't have that more improved keyboard. We have the QWERTY because that's the way that it was originally designed. And it's a pretty small improvement. Like it's a pretty minor improvement if we go to a new one, but the costs of trying to get there getting out of the situation we are now and changing all the keyboards and changing everything is just huge, right? So we're, we're kind of happy to stay in what is technically a bad equilibrium because it's a pretty minor equilibrium, but that's a little bit puzzling from a theoretical point of view. Mm. Why, why does this happen? And then you sort of move on to more serious things like uh, I think later we'll talk about um, female genital mutilation as, mm. as a bad social norm or, or foot binding in China. They used to yes. bind women's feet. Or you can even think of handshaking, for instance. Handshaking, well, there, are, there are many different greetings we could have when, when two mm. people come into contact. And different cultures have got different ones. Like in Japan, you're not shaking hands traditionally when you see someone for the first time. Is that right? We, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a little bit different nowadays. I mean, Japan is, is obviously a bit more, a bit more westernized. But, yes. But, um, but there are greetings where there's, there's limited contact, where you'll, you'll bow to someone else or you'll do oh, something yes. else. And there are also, you know, there are communities in the US where it's much more common to go for a fist bump than it is for a handshake. We decided generally in the Western world to go for a handshake, but the origins of that are kind of, kind of interesting. I'm, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here. I no, tell me mind, more. That's interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. But, uh, but it, it links into the, the theory of social norms in the, in the paper. So I'll give you the example first and then we'll see how it links into the paper. So with, with handshaking, there was a time a long time ago where tribes would come into contact with each other, groups that perhaps hadn't ever um, hadn't ever encountered the other one before. So completely new. You've got a new entity. You don't exactly know the friend or foe yet. The leaders emerge from their different groups to greet each other, and you go in for a two-handed handshake. So right hand uh, shakes right hand, left hand sort of grips the forearm, left hand grips the forearm to show that you don't have a weapon. You don't mm. have a knife behind your back or anything like this. So it's a way of greeting each other um, which serves a purpose, it shows that you are friendly. Now, these days, we don't generally carry these knives around. <laughs> we don't generally meet leaders of, uh, of tribes for the first time. And we know about germs. So we know mm. that there is a small downside to this. But on the other hand, if you were to go into a business meeting for the first time, you know, you're trying to seal a deal, the CEO offers to shake your hand and you don't do it, there's a, there's a cost that comes with that. You know, first impressions matter. So we've decided to keep this practice going, even though it serves no purpose anymore and, in fact, is slightly worse than the alternatives that we could yes. come up with because of germs. Yeah. Because it's it's uh, it's to do with basically this social interdependence of payoffs, which I mentioned in the abstract. Basically, we care about what others do. We want to be able to do the same thing as them. And if we go against the norm, there's a social cost to us. Uh, that, yeah. social, that social costs can come in many different ways. Like in the business world, it's about, you know, giving the right impression when you first mm. meet someone. Um, but for instance, in the case of female genital mutilation, it can be more direct in the sense that your daughter may not be able to get married. If she can't get married, you've got to care for her. You may not have the resources to do that. Um, so that, you know, there can be other different costs that come with it. Yeah. Um, just occurred to me that something like wearing a tie to work could be, a, that is a social norm as well. And I remember when I started 
So I think we both worked in the Treasury. I think we were in Canberra. I think we were at different times. That was a place where most people wore, well, most of the men wore ties there. When I started in Queensland Public Service, the majority wore ties, but there were a few who didn't. But then suddenly Peter Beattie comes out and says, oh, in summer you don't have to wear a tie. And so so people don't wear ties any, <laughs> anymore. And it was, well, well, more people started not to wear them and eventually it just reached a point where everyone, like it reaches a tipping point. Is that what happens in these sort of games? That it exactly. can get to a tipping point and then, okay, maybe I'm getting off uh, off topic <laughs> a bit, but no, I, just thought, I, just, I just thought of that example as well. It's a really good example actually because norms around social etiquette are quite prevalent as well, like whether or not you eat food with your hands, Mm. um, whether or not you start eating before everyone else has got their meal, little things like that. Those things don't sound super important from a public policy perspective, but it also comes down to things like in some cultures, you order your own drinks at the bar and in other cultures, you order around the group. Uh, Like in England, it's more, more traditional that you order around. So if you've got, you know, five people meeting for drinks, there's a strong norm that everyone should buy around. Well, that means that everyone's having five drinks and that yes. may not be everyone's preference, but in, in fact, it may be no one's preference. It may be that none of the group wants to have that many drinks, but you end up doing it because that's the norm you've got in place. Yeah. And that is a public policy kind of issue. Mm. But when you mentioned Peter Beattie getting up to say something, there are different ways that we kind of explore in the paper, different mechanisms to try to get out of bad social norms. And one of them is to have kind of like a trendsetter yeah. figure or an authority figure making a public announcement to try to reset the norm. It's yeah. interesting that it, it worked in your workplace. Yeah, it did, it did. I should mention, because if you're in the audience and you're not in Australia, you may not know who Peter Beattie is. He was the Premier of Queensland for many years, that Queensland's estate, David and I, are in, yes. And, uh, yeah, just took Beattie one summer to say, oh, look, Brisbane gets really hot in summer, don't wear a tie, I'm not going to wear one. And then everyone goes, oh, hang on, we actually don't have to, <laughs> to wear this. And <laughs> this is actually quite uncomfortable in summer. Why on earth were we, were we wearing it? Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. Okay, very good. So it, it, did we answer that question of how, how does a bad norm become an equilibrium of a coordination game? It's that fact that you, everyone's sort of doing it and then you don't want, you don't want to be the one who stands out and, and breaks the norm and you, and be the outsider or you could because you could upset people who are used to that norm. Is that roughly what's going on? Yeah. Um, the, the theories from social psychology for how bad norms emerge are um, a little bit controversial but quite interesting. Basically, um, if you set it up as a, as a game in game theory, then you have under certain parameters a good equilibrium and a bad equilibrium that can emerge and the certain parameters, the most important one to think about is just that there's a strong sense of social pressure somehow. It's called different things like social identity or conformism or for whatever reason, there's a there's a reason in your group that you want to go along with the rest of the group. It makes sense for the group to coordinate on something. And it can be something as simple like a bunch of teenagers deciding whether or not they're going to be smokers. Mm. You don't make that as a collective decision, but it kind of makes sense in your group like the group's going to be happier if they're all doing one thing or the other thing. But the controversial part comes in, well, how do you work out? Do we end up in the good one or the bad one? Well, it's about those initial conditions in game theory terms. And this is where it gets a bit debatable. But the theory is that at some point there were payoffs that were a bit different or circumstances that were a bit different so that the bad equilibrium actually made sense as okay. a good equilibrium. Yeah. 
So with handshaking, I mentioned that one yes. because it's a bit easier to understand. Yeah, you know? we, yeah, yeah. we didn't know about germs and stuff. But then, of course, the question you've got to ask is, well, okay, how can female genital mutilation ever have made sense? Yes. Or how can, like, Chinese foot binding yeah. ever have made sense? Which is a question I get. I used to get asked quite a lot when I'd present this paper because it just sounds so outrageous that it, that it ever did. There was, um, there was a very interesting researcher um, who published a paper back in, in the 90s showing that there were periods of time um, when there was resource a resource shortage, so people were sort of living hand to mouth, and there was a fair bit of polygyny in the environment where one man would have many wives. And in those sort of situations, uh, the, the richer men can provide now for, mm. for people with, with multiple wives. So if you're if you're the parents of a girl, you've got a situation where you may not have the resources to provide for her um, once she's of marriageable age, but she simply can't get married uh, to someone who can take care of her. You really want her to get married to one of these big men, this yes. rich man, but he's got a bunch of wives and he's worried about infidelity. So you've got to be able to send a credible signal that, hey, marry my daughter, she's not going to be unfaithful. And it's kind of hard to send that signal. And his argument was that, well, female genital mutilation was one of these traditions that could emerge that would send a signal that, don't worry, she's not going to go off and be unfaithful. And the same signal was sort of sent with um, with Chinese foot binding. Right. Now, there's not a lot of evidence to support this directly, and it's not, you know, the origins of these things. I don't, um, I don't go into them too much in, in this paper. I have studied them a little bit more in terms of female genital mutilation, and I think we've got we've now got a bit of a clearer idea about how that came about. But that's the general idea of this theory that at some point it made sense, but then things change over time. We get more information. You no longer in those situations, you no longer have a need to send these signals when it comes to handshaking, you no longer need to show that you don't have, have a weapon. When it comes to smoking, we get more information now that we actually learned what the harmful risks are of smoking. You know, there was a time when smoking was considered almost healthy to lose mm. weight. Now we know that's not true. Yeah. But the problem is the social pressures are so strong that we end up stuck there. Even if we all want to get out of the equilibrium, we, we can't do it. Right, okay. So initially something may have made sense or people thought it made sense. I mean, they may have been wrong about that, but there's a perception that this had this practice had some utility and then it just persists o- over time and much longer than than is actually sensible. So with female genital mut- mutilation, that unfortunately st- is still prevalent in some regions of the world. Is that correct, David? I mean, it's, it's a practice that goes on in over 40 countries, but to differing degrees. And in some countries, it's now very low and the trend is going down. So it almost seems like you don't really need to intervene. You may want to intervene to speed up the process, but it looks like even if even if uh, you don't put big programs in place, it, it's going to die out, which makes sense because you mentioned the tipping point. Once you get past a certain tipping point where people feel comfortable changing to the other side, basically, mm. then that sort of starts a bit of a snowball. Um, but then you've got a few other countries like Somalia, which is the country that I focus on, where it's still about 98% of females across the country. So, you know, that's that's your, um, that's your stereotypical 
uh, equilibrium point where almost 100% of the population are coordinating on the same practice. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll go back to your original paper and then we'll try and get back to uh, FGM in Somalia and, and to learn about what you've been doing there. Okay. So we've talked about the bad norm being an equilibrium of a coordination game. The other view is based on pluralistic ignorance in which uncertainty about others' preferences is crucial. Yep, I can understand that. We just don't know what the other people prefer and we think this is what they want. They actually think this is a good idea too. In an experiment, we find clear support for the pluralistic ignorance perspective. In addition, the strength of social interactions is important for a bad norm to persist these findings help in understanding the causes of such bad norms and in designing interventions to change them. Okay, so could you tell us a bit about the experiment you ran, please, David, and like how you set it up and what sort of people were involved, please? Yeah, um, I'll just maybe mention that term pluralistic ignorance okay. um, because it's maybe a bit a bit foreign to most people, particularly to economists because yeah. we don't, it's, it's a term from social psychology. So the models of social norms in, in economics, particularly focus around social interactions, you don't really um, assume that people can have false beliefs about others. In fact, to get an equilibrium set up in game yeah. theory, it must be the case that people have correct beliefs at the end of the day, because if you don't, those things will get updated o- over time. So eventually you have a, these assumption of rationality, yeah. rational expectations, full information. So it might be that um, there, there are six of six of you in a group, all smoking. You all kind of know that the others want to give it up, but for whatever reason, you can't get out of that situation. Now, that doesn't seem particularly logical, particularly because social psychologists have have said for a long time that a key factor is this uncertainty about what others actually want. So, social psychologists would say no. There are some situations where, if you knew that the others wanted to give it up, mm. then you'd all you'd all get it done. But it's the fact that you can't be sure and for whatever reason the social pressures are there that you can't actually voice your objection. So imagine you've got like a dictatorial government, you don't like the government, um, you'd like to get a revolution going, but you can't go to your friends and say, hey, I don't like the government, what do you guys think? Because if you're wrong about what they think, then you've kind of stuck your neck out. So it's a situation where it's not easy to signal what you truly believe. And psychologists think that that matters a lot because that situation where you maintain a a false perception about what the rest of the group believe, that's pluralistic ignorance. You think all the others are against you and you're the only one, but you're not. And all of you are in that situation. So that should matter a lot for getting out of the norm. Whereas for economic models, it doesn't make a difference. And when you've got this sort of playoff of, uh, uh, prediction from economics versus a prediction from social psychology that's a perfect time to run a lab experiment and see which one actually emerges as um explaining more of the data when when people um make their choices so we set up that situation identical situation to the um canonical social interactions models of economics in the lab where people are making a choice between two things one's better for them than the other one, so a good norm versus a bad norm. But your payoffs depend on how many of the others in in the group make the same as you. So you want to be in the majority, but you also get an extra payoff for choosing the one that's better for you. And the treatments are, in, in one situation, you kind of know what's best for the others as well, their personal preferences. 
And the other, you don't have full information about that. There's a bit of uncertainty. So we make a situation where pluralistic ignorance can emerge. Following me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, is it is it easy to give like an example of what those games were and the payoffs, or is it just, or is there too much detail to go into now? I uh, no, I can do that. So, so basically, you can think about it in dollar terms. We basically say A or B. Which one do you want to choose? Yeah. And door A gives you ten dollars, and door B gives you five dollars. Yeah. But there's there's ten people in your group, so there's nine others, and you get two bucks for every person who makes the same choice as you as well. Okay, yeah. So you've got to do a little bit of math to work it out, but we don't make it hard for them in the lab. We give them a little calculator so they can, you know, you, you just press the numbers on the screen and it'll tell you exactly what your payoffs are. Like, do you think that five people will choose the same as you? Well, this is what you'll get, you know, so you don't, we don't tax them too much there. And then they've got to make a call basically. And we fiddle with those numbers as well. So if we want to create a, an artificial world where, there are bigger social pressures than would say something like you get five bucks for every person who chooses the same as you. That's like an artificial way in the lab to increase the social pressure. You care more about what others are doing in those situations. Yeah. Okay. If we can go back to how, how is this? So how then are you distinguishing between these different hypotheses? How does this game help you do that? Yeah. So in, in one version of the game, it's pretty much just as I, Yep. Just as I explained to you, nothing more going on than that. So yep. there's a there's a fair bit of uncertainty yes. about what others' private preferences are. Yes. And you, your best guess about what others' preferences are comes from their actions because you don't know anything more about them. Maybe some – think about a world situation where it's not easy to – you don't feel free or safe to tell each other what you, mm. you privately want to do. Yeah. So all you're doing is you, we play this game multiple times and every time it happens, you look at what the group percentage was. So imagine you, you choosing A is your 10 bucks, choosing yeah. B is your five bucks. You choose A and then you see what happens and you see that everyone else chose B, which means that you lost a fair bit of money in that because you're losing two bucks every time someone's choosing the opposite as you. So, so in that situation, for example, nine people, chose the opposite to you you lost two bucks every time so you lost 18 bucks from them you gained 10 bucks from your choice overall you made a loss and so now you've got to make the same choice again Mm. and you've got to make your best guess about what the others truly want well they seem to be all choosing b so maybe you switch to b but you don't really know what they privately want you're just trying to extract that information from what they're doing but in the in the second treatment we tell you more information about what they privately want. So we say, now you've got to think about a sort of world where you are a bit freer to, to ask people, well, what do you really want? What do you yes. really think about the government? What do you really think about, like, you're going out for another night on the town with the boys. What do you really think about binge drinking? Are you, you know, are you a big fan of it or, or, or not? If you, if, we, if you had your way, would we go off and do something else? That sort of stuff. We give a bit more of that information. And like I said, from the economic models, it shouldn't make any difference. But in the lab, it makes a huge difference. So if you see that everyone's choosing B in that first round, but privately they'd prefer to choose A, yeah. if you can see that, then you feel more confident sticking with A, sticking with the choice that hurt you before because now you know more about what they really want. And over time, everyone switches. Uh, in our experiment, everyone was more likely to switch to the good norm once they're given that extra information. So the way that that translates into the real world is any intervention that makes it safer for you to signal your true preferences is likely to help 
yeah. the group to escape a bad norm. Now it's easier said than done in a lot of situations, but imagine, well, that's, that's when we try to take it out into the field basically and create these sort of interventions where people can safely and anonymously signal their true preferences and then they can try to coordinate on a better outcome. Right. Is this related to the prisoner's dilemma? Is this a, am I on the right track there? I'm just trying to think about this. So the bad norm was picking door A, which was a guaranteed, you'd get $10, but then you don't get, uh, but you you might be better off. The good norm is getting door, picking door B. And if everyone, if other people pick door B as well, that you get an extra $2 for them, but you start off with a lower guaranteed return. It was $5. Is that Am I on the right track or am I missing it? I feel that I haven't explained this very well. <laughs> so I'll, I'll take the, I'll, I'll wear the, uh, the criticism for not explaining it well. But what I, what I meant to say is that in that situation, Dora is your good norm because it's a higher payoff for you. Okay. If, if everybody, imagine everybody's the same. Everybody's yes. actually got Dora is 10 and door B is five, which is basically like saying that non-smoking is A and smoking is B. Yes, so yes. So society as a whole would be better off if everyone chose A, if everyone didn't smoke. And maybe that's the way that the government wants to push people for health reasons or yes, you know, general okay. health costs, yep. that sort of stuff. So the government wants to push people to, to choice A, and actually the people themselves privately would go to choice A. But imagine that the first time that you ever tried door A, or sorry, I say door A because that's the term we use in the experiment, but the first time that yeah. you sort of signal I'm choosing A, you're in a society that for whatever reason has a smoking culture and everyone else is choosing B, then that they may not want to, but they are. And what that means is that you're losing out. So you decide to become one of them because it's better mm. for you to join the group, even if it's not in your private best interest. And what oh, I'm okay. saying is you might yeah. end up with everyone choosing this option B. Yeah. Whereas society would be much better off if everyone was choosing A, the good norm. Yeah, okay. So society may be better off if everyone chooses A, the good norm. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. But we end up stuck in this situation where everyone's choosing B and it's individually costly to be the first one to switch, to be kind of like the martyr who says, no, I know that all of us would be better off, so I'm going to be the first to, you know, change away and uh, come and follow me. And maybe people will eventually follow you but you'll have to wear a fair few costs in the meantime as mm. being the first one to do it. Um, so, uh, okay, okay. Um, another another historical example about this is um, practice of dueling. Yes, in, yes. Uh, aristocratic France, but also in the American South for a long time, that was the case. You know, kind of a way to prove your honour when there were disagreements. Mm. And basically, every society has had men trying to hurt each other to yeah. sort of disagreement in different ways. But back in the days of the, uh, you know, 16th, 17th century, it actually wasn't that dangerous. The guns weren't super powerful and they certainly weren't very accurate from a medium range as well. So you're often missing the other person or if you're hitting them, you're kind of winging them in a way that's, you know, it's going to cause damage, but it's unlikely to kill them. Mm. But over time, technology gets better with guns. It becomes super costly um, to, to partake in a duel. But society has put so much pressure on you that, you know, if someone challenges yeah. you to a duel, if you don't accept it, then you're basically ostracized from, yes. from the entire group. And this was like, a, this was a huge policy issue for, yeah. for over a century. You know, like basically you've got grown, civilized, educated men who are the leaders 
you know, we had like vice presidents of the USA, <laughs> you know, getting challenged to duels, like, like as if it's a barroom brawl, but with guns and having to wake up at dawn and shoot each other, you know. And he won that one. That was Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton and uh, <laughs> yes. Burr prevailed, but he had to flee, didn't he? Or that destroyed his political career. Yes. Yeah, at least we, we got a good musical out of it. Yes. So that was something. Yes. But, you know, you know how they eventually got rid of this practice? Because obviously, you know, you could come up with other things, many other ways to solve your disagreements. Yeah. Like you could have an arm wrestle or a thumb war, you know, <laughs> rather than shoot each other. Yeah, yeah. But what the only way that they could break this norm was to um, replace it with another norm that was considered also super strong within that group and the social identity. And that norm was a gentleman should be able to run for public office that was highly respected, you know, being a member of public office mm. in the American South. So, the law for, for many years, they tried to pass a law saying that dueling is illegal. You can't duel, but that didn't really put people off because a man's honor was considered so strong and so important that they'd be willing to break the law rather than say no to a duel. Yeah. So then the new law was passed that you cannot run for public office if you partake in a duel. Uh, and, yeah. and what was great about this is that for people who wanted to say no to a duel, but felt that they couldn't because they couldn't justify it in terms of honor. Now they could, they could say no with an honorable excuse. They could say, no, I want to run for public office, which is, you know, a gentleman's duty, a gentleman's high honor. And that is my reason for saying no to your duel. And that was a socially acceptable excuse. Uh, yeah. And, and once, once you were given that sort of get out of jail card, um, the norm died away because the norm, you know, made no sense to the society anymore at that point. You just needed some sort of mechanism to allow people to um, to deviate from the practice. Yeah, fair enough. Just on dueling, Douglas Allen, who, who I've interviewed on this podcast about his stuff on lockdowns, he's a professor at Simon Fraser University in Canada. He wrote a book, The Institutional Revolution. I think it was published by Princeton in 2014. Really good book. And he talks about dueling. And he says, the way to understand it is that it was a way that you would identify those men without honour. And they're all men in those days, right? I mean, you know, and so it's a way of stopping the opportunists or the people who weren't worthy of being in the aristocracy (laughs) into the aristocracy. It's quite an elaborate argument. uh, Because if you were really a, if you were part of the aristocracy, you had a lot more to lose if you refused to duel. But if you were just yeah. some upstart or someone who was a, a uh, yeah, if you were a, someone without any honour and uh, you weren't a real aristocrat, then you'd just go, oh, I'm not going to duel, and then, yeah, you're over, you're, you're going to be ostracised. So I thought that was an interesting argument. It's a way that the, the aristocracy maintained itself. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah. It, it goes to the same idea that you, these norms can only persist when you've got really strong social identity pressures within your group and yeah. he's basically arguing that within the aristocracy the social pressures that that social utility we call it is stronger than that kind of uh that kind of matches pretty well yeah yeah i'll uh, i'll put a link in the show notes and i'll send you the the details of that book it's quite fascinating i'm going to try to get doug back on the program to uh to chat about it because he he talks about a whole range of institutions in the sort of pre-modern world that Made sense in the their con, in the in those times, given the available technology, but no longer makes sense. So yeah, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll get back to that. Uh, 
on the sort of example, I'll put the example in the show notes. I'll have a. It's possible I just was completely dim, David. So no, don't worry about it. I, it may, I, I just, uh, I'll put the example in the the show in the show notes, and then uh, yeah, and then people, if you're listening, you can consult that. Um, but I, I think I generally understand what you're talking about, so that's good. Could we chat now? just before we wrap up, about the female genital mutilation in Somalia. And did you mention you're doing field work on this? And Yeah. Could you just talk about that, please? Yeah, I, I got kind of interested during my PhD in the different applications of this stuff in the lab. Lab experiments are super, super nice uh, mm. tools in economics because everything's nicely controlled except for your one manipulation. Um, but when it comes to things like social norms, you can artificially create them using money the, the way that I was attempting poorly to explain. No, it no, no. Um, but it's much, I think it's much more externally valid if you can find situations where the norms already exist in a group and then see whether your ways to break them apart still make sense. Uh, and the norm that I became very interested in is um, female genital mutilation. Um, and I worked with a team of researchers in in Italy and also a couple of NGOs, particularly Save the Children, who's, who's been um, yeah. working in, in Somalia on this, where I said like 98% of women um, uh, are, are circumcised in some form. And um, yeah, so in their in their, their villages, their communities, typically around say 100 households, it's roughly about the mean. It is kind of a, it is a tough life subsistence wise. And having, having daughters means that you are already thinking basically from an early stage um, about their marriageable mm. eligibility in Somalia, as opposed to other parts of um, Africa, say on, on Western Africa, the circumcision is usually done very young between the ages of seven to 10. So the girl herself doesn't have a choice. It's the, the parents who are making the choice. Typically the mother and the grandmother have a lot of say in the action. So it's not uh, necessarily are directly sort of males imposing themselves on, on females here, but it's a practice passed on from the women. And a bit of it's got to do with, well, from the, the grandmother has a fair bit of sway when she advises her, her daughter, whether or not to circumcise the new girl. So the granddaughter of the grandmother, and it's pretty tough for the grandmother because even if she's changed her mind privately, imagine mm. that she's decided now oh, this is a pretty terrible practice over time. If she says to her daughter, no, don't do it. Then basically she's admitting that what she did to her own daughter many years ago was wrong. So yes. it's, 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 it's tough from a, from a self yeah. self concept perspective to, to make that switch, which means that these practices sort of organically keep getting passed on from generation to generation. And then that gets ingrained in the traditions, particularly around marriage. So many, many parents will say, I don't want my son to marry a girl who hasn't been circumcised even if the sons themselves wouldn't privately have a problem with it, um, it means that that family would be on the outer, which means the girl doesn't get resources and that can lead to, yeah, can lead to serious issues if you don't have enough food to go around. Um, all that's to say that I got very interested in, in this and also the fact that recently a substitute norm has kind of just by chance been introduced into Somalia over the last couple of decades. So I mentioned with dueling the substitute norm kind of that you, you can't get um, public office. Yeah. Probably a more comparable example is about smoking where we've seen the introduction of e-cigarettes 
yeah, sort of an alternative into this uh, binary choice. Instead of just smoking and non-smoking, you've got this group of people, e-cigarette smokers, who are kind of accepted by non-smokers, but also kind of accepted by smokers. If you're an e-cigarette smoker, you can hang out with your mates who are non-smokers when you're, you're standing yes, outside. Yes. But you can also head outside the bar when the smokers go out for a cigarette, and both groups kind of accept you. And there's a lot of debate at the moment about e-cigarettes, about yeah. whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. Like, is it a gateway for non-smokers to end up being smokers? Or is it a gateway the other way for smokers to finally start to quit? Or is it something that's kind of kind of take over as the dominant norm by itself? Um, this debate was all going on before we found out that actually there are a few drawbacks health-wise from e-cigarettes. And so that's kind of muddied the waters a little bit. Right, yeah. But in Somalia, there are different types of circumcision. There are two main types, and that's the big thing that's changed. So the one that most people have probably heard of because there have been a few like movies and books written about the horrible practice is called pharaonic circumcision. It actually comes from the, what the Romans used to do to their female slaves to prevent them from getting pregnant, um, which is where this, um, this concept comes from because it was brought from the Romans down through Egypt and then into the rest of Africa. And it's, it's seriously bad. So big health consequences if you have a kid in the future, if you give birth, there are there are serious risks to the mother, serious risks to the baby. You'll never enjoy intercourse ever yeah. again. You'll get urinary tract infections. Like it's it's bad news basically. And now this new type's come in called Sunna, which is closer to male circumcision, a little bit worse, but not a huge amount worse. So it's 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 painful. There are a few minor health complications, but nothing to the same extent and generally no permanent damage. And it's really interesting because it's a much, much better state of the world if everyone in Somalia was to switch to Sunna. Mm. And so one of the theoretical questions that we were interested in is should the NGOs be pushing this as a substitute? Now oh, yes. we could yeah. say it's, it's ethically, it's very, very tough yeah. because you, you sort of see where this is going, right? Like it, it could be a, it could be a gateway. It could be a pathway because NGOs have been trying for 20 years to get rid of the worst type of circumcision there with zero success. You know, it's still almost hundred percent. This could be a way to move them away from the bad practice. And then once we get, it's like getting everyone onto e-cigarettes. Once yeah. we get them there, then it's only a short step for them to give it up entirely. On the other hand, it could become the new dominant norm and it could become so rock solid that even though in other countries we've actually seen over the generations then go away from female circumcision, we could basically be ingraining this new type of circumcision for the long term. So, and how do you ethically justify, particularly if you're a you know a world NGO, how do you justify to your backers that you're actually promoting a form of female circumcision? So it's a it's yeah. a really tricky situation. Yeah. Okay. I mean, is there any guidance from the research, uh, from the literature on w- what what makes sense? I mean, uh, or is, it, is it does it depend on the situation? Because I yeah, I can understand that. I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, this might be better than than what they're doing at the moment, but at the same time, it's still not good. So, can you actually would you be better off just campaigning to outlaw it entirely, or is that just would that be letting perfect be the enemy of the good? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, how do you make those judgments? Yeah, it's really tough. And to be honest, you know, these sort of judgment calls, these normative decisions are things that, in my opinion, they're not really for economists to say, mm. you know, we should be able to give give the data and give the evidence so that 
the people who make these decisions have the best information possible. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. Um, in terms of just outlawing it, it is actually illegal and has been for a while, but that seems to make no difference, um, particularly in a place like, you know, like Somalia where social norms are really important because there's less trust in institutions and that's where you really need social norms, where, where there's usually a benefit from social norms to help transaction and trade because you're no longer trusting, you know, you don't have an ATM around the corner or something like this where you can be certain that your money's going in and out of safely. Um, so outlawing things hasn't seemed to work. Yeah, so the research is, is reasonably new, but what we first try to do is to use the data that we've got to make some sort of prediction in our models about whether we think this SUNA is going to become dominant or not um, under certain conditions. To the best of our knowledge, it looks like it is becoming more of a dominant norm at the moment and it might sort of establish itself for a while. Mm. Still, it's not clear whether or not it's the best decision. Like it may, it may still be worth it actually just because Pharaonic is is so abhorrent. Um, but again, we don't make that call. We just sort of provide the information to say that if you do push for sauna, it does look like it may become dominant. Um well, the other thing we did is actually try to take a few of those lab interventions into the field to see yeah. if we can get get the families to or get the communities to change their ways a bit. And we really want them to make the decision to change their traditions themselves without us coming in and saying, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. Here, do the right thing. So this idea of anonymously signaling your true preferences, we organize these sort of experiments. We call them experiments, but they're essentially like a little group public group sessions um, in, in the communities where we gave the women the chance to have an anonymous poll, kind of like a vote in their communities to say, like, I would actually prefer it if all of us weren't doing this or I'd actually prefer it if all of us were doing this. Now, it's completely anonymous. It doesn't come back to them. But first, we, we ask them to predict what they think the group's going to say, and most of them predict yeah, well, most of the other people are going to say, yes, they want to keep the tradition going. It's important for our culture. And then we get their community leader to read out, count out the results of the survey. We don't do it. You know, we don't, uh, you know, they may not trust us as researchers coming in. So we kind of want them all to do it themselves. And the community leader sort of counts out and they actually can see that the majority of the women in the room don't want the practice to keep going. Right. They, don't, they don't know who it is. You know, yeah. no, one's, no one's stuck their neck out for this. And then we, then we provide them with an opportunity to, if they want, in that, that sort of safe space where it's just the women in the room and they know that the majority of the women now have a preference um, against this practice. If they want, they can now publicly reveal themselves and kind of coordinate together, yeah. talk to each other about this. Maybe they feel a bit more comfortable to do this. So we try to take it in little baby steps. And all these steps that I mentioned to you, then we have different treatments where we just do one of those steps. And then we just do the second step. So first they just do the vote and the prediction. Mm. And the second step, we we add on something extra where we get the community leader to count out the votes in front of them. And the third step, in the third treatment arm, we have this opportunity to publicly, publicly announce your support for abandoning FGM. And we look at how those different contributions to the overall program um, affects behaviour in the future. Okay, and so where are you up to in the research? Have you published these findings yet, or are you still you're still analysing the data? Yeah, it's just the wrong time for the podcast because we're just 
collected the baseline, uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. the end line data, which is the final results, but we haven't analyzed them yet. <laughs> so, That's okay. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll mention it when I, when they come out, I'll, uh, I'll loop back to this and uh, I'll mention what the findings were, but I can, un- no, it sounds, uh, it sounds fascinating. It's a good example of a, of a really practical study. It's in that sort of tradition of what, um, is it Esther DeFlo and, and, uh, yeah, and Banerjee, right. is it? Uh, did I get that right? What they're doing? Yeah, particularly RCTs in developing countries. Yeah, um, and um, that's yeah. It, it's essentially the the field that's developed largely from a lot of the work that they've done. Um, that's the that's the field that we're um, can, trying to contribute to with with this work. And it's you know it's it's really tough because as a as an early career researcher it's so much easier to run an experiment in the lab with mm. say students from the University of Queensland like that takes me you know a, a week to put together whereas this is a hugely expensive and hugely log- logistically difficult thing to do actually some of the communities in Somalia are nomadic so you try to catch up with them for like yeah. inline surveys but you've got to find where they are first so it's it's tough to do but I think that the potential benefits from this stuff are really important, particularly if economists are going to wade into these these areas with their methods and you know their theories. It's really nice to see their applications um, in practice. You know, if you want to get you want to get the full package of our contribution, you've got to be able to see that these theoretical contributions make sense in the real world. And at least from the midline data that we've got, so that's about twelve months after these um, first group meetings, um, it's shown really positive results. So at least in terms of their attitudes and their intentions, we now want to see whether those those promises, like, yeah, we're not going to cut our daughters in the future, we want to see whether that actually materialises into actions now. So that's really what we care about, make sure that the words are being followed up. Great. No, that's that's good. That's really good. Uh, just before we do go, I'm interested in, uh, do you want to give a shout-out to who funded the study? Because it sounded like you ne- you did need a bit of funding because obviously you've had to hire You'd have to hire local guides or interpreters, translators. I'm guessing, so it must be. Yeah, there are actually various uh, funding funding sources. Um, a lot of it was funded from um, European Research Council grant, and also a bit of it came from um, DFID, which is a yep. development organisation in the UK. Um, some came from the Italian government as well, and then some came from the NGOs themselves, Save the Children, and a few others. So there've oh, been yep. various. Uh, various contributions, various stakeholders uh, involved, uh, which, yeah, particularly for me has been um, I've been incredibly fortunate to have that sort of support because it hasn't been an easy um, project to run, um, particularly with COVID hitting as well in, in, in the past couple of years. But, um, yeah, there you go. I've, I've done my best to name the name, so hopefully... Uh, oh, that's <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah. Better from that. Important yeah. uh, project. Okay, Dave, I think we've come up to time. You're probably going to go back to your uh, the the interviews for your uh, the new position at, positions at UQ. So uh, uh, is there anything else before we wrap up that I sh- we should get out there? No, look, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, I apologise again for not explaining my research very well oh no i don't think it's you it's probably me i probably did. I'll, I'll i'll probably listen back to this when i'm editing and i'm thinking why did i miss that and anyway if i did i'll put that example in the show notes so people can follow it uh and uh, yeah i'll put a link to the paper i think i've got a preprint of it the uh, everybody's doing it on the persistence of bad social norms uh, david smerton from the university of queensland thanks so much for your time really enjoyed that cheers thanks a lot 
Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.